Galatians chapter 6. We are continuing in our study through the book of Galatians. And what an amazing text we have today. This has been a real profitable study for me. Um, the, the gospel is such a wonderful thing. God's grace is such a wonderful thing. Amen. And it doesn't matter where you are in life, we all need God's grace, don't we? Amen. We all need it. And so let's, let's start reading in verse 1, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one, in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. That's a hard verse, isn't it? But let every man prove his own work. Then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. Dear Heavenly Father, help us as we study your word this morning. This is an amazing text. It covers... So many different subjects, so many different areas. But Lord, help us to focus it to the thing that would be the most needful for this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. When we read the Bible, context is important. Context is important. There's a passage in Leviticus that says if you have a rebellious teenager, to take him out and stone him to death. Any young people getting nervous right now? What was the purpose of that? Well, that's in that context. You have to understand what's going on in the Scriptures to understand what's, what's being said there. What's the context here? In the book of Galatians, you had people, or in, in the churches of Galatia, you had some people who had come along and said that salvation, our hope of eternal life, is not based on grace alone, but you have to add the works of the law to that. And so, the, in the book of Galatians, we are taught that salvation is a free gift. You cannot earn it. It just must be received. But that's not the only thing the book of Galatians teaches. The, the major teaching of the book of Galatians is that we, not only are we saved by grace, but we serve God by grace. That, that the power to live the Christian life only comes from God. It's not in you. It's not in your flesh. You can't do it on your own. It's important for us to see that. Now when we get to chapter 6, it's bringing it all home. You know, it's interesting what the Bible does, and especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul. He gives you truth, which is up here. And then before he's done, he brings it down to where you live. I heard someone say it this way. That when you teach, you start with the law, with something that is true. You, you illustrate it through art and culture and experience, and you apply it with Jerry Springer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope that's not what our church service becomes today. You know, some crazy person trying to beat up some other crazy person because they're doing something wrong in their family. Um, how many of you hope that's not what happens in church today? Let's make sure that's not what happens. But one of the big errors that has happened in Christianity is we have two extremes. You have something that is 
only practical. And so the all of truth is based on how it affects me, as if I'm the center of the universe. That's a mistake. Would you all agree with that? And then there's another mistake that puts it all pie in the sky, that it's all just theoretical and it doesn't matter. Those are both errors. This text today helps us to understand what the truth is. So let's dive into it. Number one, I want you to see a proper view of economy. A proper view of economy. And what I mean by economy is what is true in the way that we govern ourselves in New Testament Christianity, in, in this form of Christianity that has been in existence since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is right? What's wrong? Where does God place value? Well, first of all, it is spiritual to help a brother, to help restore a brother who's messed up. That's, that's spiritual. How many of you know that we're not all perfect? You know that there are a lot of people who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ because of the behavior of Christians? Isn't that interesting? There are a lot of people that do that. And so there's another thing. I've heard someone say this. Only in Christianity do we shoot our wounded. How many of you ever heard somebody say something like that? The only problem is it's not true. I've seen, I've seen you come to the aid of a brother or sister who's messed up over and over and over again. That picture that's painted, it's simply not true. You know, the old movies, uh, um, Burt Lancaster being the preacher and just being a, just a wicked person. That, that, that image goes back. And when was that movie made? 50, 60 years ago? That's the image that's been put forth. In Christianity, it's all about brothers and sisters in Christ coming to another person's aid. That's what we do that's right. over and over and over again. We're helping each other. I can't tell you how many people have called me this week and said, Hey, how's Kathy Nicholson doing? How's Bob Maxwell doing? What's, what's going on? Can, can I get an update on that? We're praying for them. Over and over. How's June Clutter doing? June's here today. Praise God. Amen. Sitting next to her doctor. Praise the Lord. Just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to focus. I'm trying to focus back to where I'm supposed to go. But in God's economy, we help each other. Isn't that right? It's very clear here. So first of all, it's spiritual to help restore a brother who's messed up. Then, and we see that in verse 1, then it is spiritual to pull your own weight and not be a burden on your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to help bear each other's burdens, is that right? But then look at what it says in verse, in verse uh, 5. For every man shall bear his own burden. Right? And so we said... That, that got, I was speaking up in Michigan a week or so ago, and um, the pastor asked me to speak on socialism and the social gospel. And so I read some scripture and I said, okay, God's word, God's message to our culture is this. Don't be a mooch. <laughs> Amen? That's right. So it's spiritual to help people. But it's also spiritual not to be a burden on someone else if you can do something about it. If you can't, if you're in genuine need, we're here to help. Right? But you don't start out the day saying, I'm going to go and be a burden on somebody else. So God's economy. Do you all understand that? All right. And then letter C. It is spiritual to provide for the preachers of the Word of God. Look with me at verse 6. 
Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. So, in another passage it says, don't muzzle the ox that treads the corn. I don't know that I appreciate being called an ox, but that's what God says about preachers. And so it is the responsibility of those who are taught in the Word to provide for those that teach. That's, that's what this text says. And that's an awkward thing for a preacher to stand up and say. But let me say this. Praise God for the way you guys take care of Pastor Nathan and me, our families. You take good care of us. That's a blessing. You're doing right in doing that. I had a lady come to my office years and years ago. I can't remember, man or late, I can't remember. And they sat down and said, uh, you know, I've got a problem with this church. And I said, okay, see if I can help. I don't think preachers ought to be paid. Sorry, can't help you. <laughs> it was an interesting conversation. I tried to take him through the scriptures and show that, you know, a workman's worthy of his hire. The Bible says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they that labor in the word and in doctrine. The Bible makes it very clear that, that it's the responsibility of believers to pay for those who teach them. Do you see how economy fits into all of this? When, when you have a brother or sister in Christ that's struggling financially, we help them. When they're struggling spiritually, we help them. But it's our responsibility to feed our own families, to make our own way, and then it's our responsibility to provide for the local New Testament church. Part of that is paying the people that teach you. That's, that's part of God's plan, part of God's economy. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this text, though. He's talking about how commentators identify. Look at verse uh, 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. So the immediate context of that verse is that we sow spiritually in the life of lives of brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that right? And we sow by making the, the pastors able to teach, helping them be able to teach by providing literature, by providing training, by providing food, that kind of thing. Is that right? If you walk into my study, you'll see thousands of books. Well, you all have paid for a lot of those books. That's, that's a way that you help me teach you. That just makes sense, right? Uh, we, as, as a community, we pay for the schools so the kids can learn. We don't you know, ask the teachers to do it for free. All the teachers said, Wade think, Wade's looking like he's doing it for free. Look at this. Get what you pay for, brother. That's all I can say. Can't you just, can't you just feel the love in this church right now? But, but you see how that there's a context here to this passage? You get what you pay for. You invest, you get what you pay for. There's an economic understanding. It's a proper view of economy. But back to what Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a preacher in England in the 1800s. And he had, he had quoted some commentaries about this text applying to providing for the work of the Lord. And he said this, But I feel sure that the apostle had a wider range than that, providing for the pastor, and that these words express a general principle. Whatso, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So I begin my discourse by reminding you that our present lives are of, utmost, are of the utmost possible importance. Listen to this right here. For on these winged hours hang eternal issues. Our present actions are not trifles. For they will decide our everlasting destiny. 
Everything we do is, to some extent, a sowing of which eternity will be the reaping. So there's a broader context here. The context is that you invest in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that right? You invest in them spiritually. You invest in them financially. You, but you do your own work. You carry your own load. That's, that, that's the biblical understanding. And it's interesting that everywhere in the Bible that I know of that tells you to help someone else, it tells you to take care of yourself. That, and you understand that was the American ideal for 200 years. Right? That's the way it's always been. I, I remember uh, we had a lady at our church in Oklahoma. Her name was Beulah Monette. Beulah, right? Beulah Monette. And uh, Laura's mom, when she got, when Mrs. Monette, she didn't have any children, her husband had died. So Laura's mom, my wife Laura's mom, would care for her. And they'd go out to eat. She, Mrs. Monette would need some business done. They'd go out to eat. And Laura's mom would try and pay. And here's what Mrs. Monette would say. I'll not be known as a moocher. She wanted to make sure there was gas put in the car, that, that she paid for the meal when they went out. I won't be known as a moocher. How many of you heard your grandparents say this? I don't take handouts. Right? Somehow in Christianity, we move from that idea to where we walk around like this. See, it's sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. It's investing and getting a return. Investing and getting a return. That is God's economy. It's the way that God designed the world, and certainly it's the way that he designed the church. We invest in people, all right? So, there, that's the proper view of economy. But then there's a proper view... How many of you see that in the text? I'm not making it up, am I? I mean, it's just, it's just right there. Next, I want you to see a proper view of reality. Proper view of economy. Let's make sure that we're pulling our own weight. And I have to say this because I think that with the political debate that's going on, which doesn't have anything to do with this message, we get the idea that if someone says that you need to pull your own weight, that you don't want to help someone who's in need. That is completely false. How many of you are more than willing to help somebody who needs help? Amen. Amen. And I think we all do all the time. I've seen you all do it. So many times you coming to the aid of someone else. So I just want to make sure that we have that clearly in, in, in the text. So we have a proper view of economy. But here in this text, I want you to see a proper view of reality. Look at what the Bible says in verse 7. Be not deceived. A proper view of reality. Don't be deceived. You understand there's a lot of false teaching out there on all kinds of things. There's all kinds of things that are false. Um, Laura was reading a book this week. Uh, Brother Tom, it was from that box of books that you brought. So here's this book. It's from the 1920s, and it's on the intimate life. And one of the things that is in this book, it's talking about doing things to preserve your race. And I'm going to pull some of it out and read it to you here sometime in the future. It would blow your mind, some of the stuff that was said about preserving your race. And who was this guy? A professor at Northwestern University and the head of some medical service in the United States. Talking, that's, that's, we don't want to preserve our race. We want to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen? People are deceived. They're deceived about things. Lots of things. You know, some of you think that the Bengals are going to win the Super Bowl. 
You just deceived. I got to help you. It's the bears. They're going to win. It's interesting. We need a we need a proper view of reality. In our culture, we're very sensitive to social injustice. And I, I think we ought to be. Um, if, if someone, you know, tor- the, the horrible story out in Colorado of that little girl that was kidnapped and killed. And as a culture, I think every person who sees that, you want justice. Is that right? We are very sensitive to that. Um, many things have been brought to the front, uh, social injustice, economic injustice, um, all different types of things. And yet, you understand that none of those are real if there's not a God? There cannot be a moral law without a moral lawgiver. The, the existence of a moral law implies a moral lawgiver. Uh, if we went to the nursery and we got a baby and we brought that baby up and said, we're going to kill this baby today. How many of you would stop me? Right? And yet in clinics all over the world, that's being done right now. And the only difference is time. That's the only difference. That's injustice. And, and, and yet so many people are deceived on that subject. And here's the problem. Have I said anything about politics and yet, there will be people in this room who are thinking, he's just, he's just a Republican. No, George Bush cured me of that. Not a Republican, not a Democrat. That's not what this message is about. And what has happened is we've become so bifurcated in our thinking. We've become so divided that when you mention reality, killing babies, all of a sudden that's a political issue? How do we, where's the justice in that? Amen? We need a proper view of reality, but our sense of justice cannot be separated from the reality of a holy God. Let me quote Spurgeon again, again from the 1800s. Some trifle with God by holding practically, if not theoretically, that there will not be rewards for virtue nor punishment for sin. That one end will come alike to all. That whatever the dignity or degradation of character may be, we shall all go to the same place and sleep there in oblivion. Or, that if there is any future life, it will be common to us all. And that, in fact, the whole question concerning the hereafter is a matter so utterly unimportant that we can afford to regard it with complete indifference. We need a proper view of reality. There is a holy God. And that holy God has revealed Himself to us clearly in the creation. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The creation itself. And I understand you have the evolution-creation debate, but no one would be walking along in the woods and see this watch and say, hmm, how did that grow there? Wouldn't that be silly? It would be, be very silly. No one would do that. You see, the existence of design requires a designer 
Francis Crick, the man who discovered DNA, the DNA double helix. I don't understand any of it. But he discovered it. Francis Crick. And he said the chances of that just happening, it's so complex, the chances of that happening would be like a tornado going through a junkyard and spitting out a 747. Now, how many of you think that's impossible? It is, right? It's impossible. And so you would think that his next step would be, well, then there's a God who designed man, who created man. No, his next step is aliens brought us here. Why? Because when you remove God from the equation, then anything's possible. When you remove God, the Big Bang, in the beginning there was nothing, and then it exploded. Remember, when you remove God from the equation, then your answers, the way that you explain reality, becomes a farce. It becomes ridiculous. And so in this area of justice, of right and wrong, in order for us to determine what right and wrong is, we have to go beyond ourselves to the higher power of God, the law giver. That's reality. That's reality. And our founders understood that. We are endued by our, endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are... Thank God the government gave us those rights. No, no. The government recognized that God gave those rights and they can't do anything to infringe on those. Is that right? That's where the world was. But now we've come to the place where the new reality says there is no God. I can do whatever I want. Well, then why don't I just kill you? Now, please hear me. Someone's going to leave here. They just woke up. Pastor Alter said we're supposed to go kill people. No. I can't kill you because God tells me not to. There's a moral lawgiver. I, I was flying somewhere, I can't remember, and I was with an administrator from Wright State who's in charge of discipline on campus. It was such an interesting conversation. And so we talked about abortion. She brought it up. So we were talking about that. And I said, well, why don't I just kill you? Well, that wouldn't be right. Why not? You're inconvenient to me. These airplane seats are too small. I'm too wide. You're in my way. That's an inconvenient truth. You see, people want a morality with not acknowledging that morality must come from outside of ourselves. Right? I think it was Ravi Zacharias who said, in one culture, they say, eat your neighbor. In another culture, they say, love your neighbor. Which one do you prefer? You see, if it's all about us, we can make those distinctions ourselves. If everything is self-determined, then, then we can determine what reality is. And that reality is not real. Look what the text says. Verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You see, 
man is deceived, and there's no deception like self-deception. Many people have a wrong idea about God. They have this idea, and, and all these cartoons and all of these uh, uh, movies and things, with God just some doting old man who can't control anything. That is not the God of the universe. Wrong view about God. They, they're deceived about eternity. Eternity. The Bible teaches that there is eternity. The Bible says God has placed the world in our hearts. You have to explain to a child where the dead person has gone. I've mentioned to you before, when our son died, Riley, our three-year-old niece would say to Laura, where's your baby? Where's your baby? The idea of life ending, that doesn't resonate with anybody. Every culture in the world, every culture in the world teaches some kind of afterlife. We all understand that there's something after death, eternity. People are deceived about that, though. Another thing people are deceived about is future judgment. Here's the idea. Here's what people think. Well, yeah, I believe in God, and I acknowledge the man upstairs. Thanks, man. That's, you understand that's where most people are who call themselves Christians. Yeah, I believe in a higher power. But that belief never impacts their life at all. Even Christians. It's interesting how Christians have so little time for church. They have so little time for their brothers and sisters in Christ. They have so little time. They're just going to wink at God. Hey, buddy, how you doing? What's up? That's where people are. That's, that's not reality, folks. That is not reality. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. So people are deceived about God, eternity, future judgment, commitment to Christ's work. It's all right here in this text. Let me say this. God has not been unclear. So let's go to the... Let, let's just look at this. Go to verse 7. We're going to spend our time now in verse 7 and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. This deception is so dangerous. Look at what the text says. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. This was very clearly understood in our culture when people understood sowing and reaping. Young people, let me explain something to you. Food does not grow in the grocery store. Right? We go to the grocery store. Uh, hey, when, when's dinner going to be ready? Well, I've got to stop at the store and I've got to make it. When, well, okay, when's it going to be ready? About 30 minutes. Not understanding how many years it took to produce that food. How long does it take for a farm to become fruitful? How long does it take for a tree to bear fruit? See, here's our problem. God is not mocked. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And here's, where, here's what we think. I did this, or I said something about God. Fire didn't fall from heaven. I didn't die. Why? Because we don't understand sowing and reaping. We don't understand that. Many people, they do not get this idea that you don't put the seed in the ground, come out the next day, and eat. Is that right? The time factor here. Is God mocked? What does it mean to mock? 
It means to look at with derision. It means to be condescending. Right? Mockery. You know, something like this. Hey, Anthony, how long does the doctor say you got to wear those shoes? Come on, that's funny. <laughs> how many of you think that would be kind of rude to say to somebody? But it sure is fun. It's mockery. Mockery. Did anybody see the debate this past week? <laughs> Regardless of where you are politically, the, the, the consensus was that the vice president was disrespectful. Is that right? I mean, that's been the consensus. Liberal, it doesn't matter. We're not going to get into the debate today. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. You understand that's the way that most people look at God. I'm going to do what I want. You're going to tell me who I... You're not going to tell me who I can sleep with, how to spend my money. You're not going to tell me what I can watch. You're not going to tell me what I can listen to. You're not going to tell me how to take care of my money. You're, I'm my own man. I can make my own decisions. You think that you're going to mock God? God will not be mocked. Because God does not immediately call down fire from heaven, they suppose there is not judgment. Let me say this. God will not accept condescending platitudes. He's not going to be satisfied with a bare profession of religion. Yeah, I'm religious. No, God wants your entire heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants all of you. What are you sowing? Look at what the text says. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. What in the world is this talking about? God is not mocked. God is not mocked. God has clearly told us. God has given us clear instructions about how to live and about how to have eternal life. Now, aren't you glad that your lifestyle doesn't determine your eternal life? How do we get eternal life? Well, the Bible says very clearly, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. You ask Him to save you. You ask Him to save you. Look at Romans chapter 10 with me. Romans 10. Look at verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Now look, that's not, yeah, Jesus, gotcha. Look at what it says. And believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto what? Righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
But this is not just some platitude. Yeah, God, I believe in you. Yeah, I believe you're there. The old man upstairs. Yep, yep, you're there. No, it's an acknowledgement that there is a holy God who created me. And I'm a sinner. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So now, here is what I'm confessing when I confess Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you are God. And that I'm a sinner. And that because I'm a sinner, I deserve to go to hell. Lord Jesus, I repent. I don't want to live this life of sin. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be in charge. I confess you. Look at what it says. That if thou shalt confess, verse 9, with thy mouth, what? The Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. You're my Lord. What does that mean? That means I get off the throne of my life and Jesus Christ takes the throne of my life. It's not just, yeah, man, I believe in you. Now, since I believe in you, I've said I believe in you. Now, stay out of my life. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to go where I want. I'm going to live the way I want. I'm going to pray that I want. I'm going to do whatever I want. How many of you think that that's what the text is teaching? Of course not. Of course not. When He is Lord, He has prerogatives in my life. See, that's what salvation is. Salvation is saying, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that You died on the cross to pay for my sin because I deserve to go to hell. I deserve to go to hell because I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus, forgive me for being a sinner and save me and be my Lord. You see, platitudes aren't going to help you in the day of judgment. I believed in God. I believed in God, but that belief never affected your life. Here's the thing that I think that we forget. Salvation is not an acknowledgement of fact. Salvation is a transaction. It's a transaction. Anthony, come up here and help me for a minute. You and your shoes. It's a transaction. Here's the transaction. What I'm doing is, let's say this is Jesus Christ and I'm a sinner. What I'm doing, this is my sin. I'm laying my sin on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is giving me back eternal life. It's a transaction that happens in a moment in time. Listen to the way it says it in Ephesians. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what it says. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. How does that happen? You're born again. You're born again. When you're born again, that happens at a point in time. It's not a process of good behavior. It's not a process of living a life that meets certain requirements. It's a transaction that takes place at a point in time where my sin is placed on the Savior and He gives me the gift of eternal life. We said at the verse a minute ago, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's a transaction. It happens at a place in time. It, it's not your baptism. 
It's not your good works. It's nothing except an acknowledgement of who Jesus Christ is. It's a recognition. Jesus, I need your help. I can't save myself. And Jesus said, that's why I came. I love Romans 5.8. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, if a good life could get you to heaven, Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. That's it. If just, you know, winking at God. Hey, man, what's up? Yeah, we're okay, right? You and me, we're all right. Yeah, I like you. That's not salvation. That's not Christianity. Christianity is understanding that there is a holy God who requires justice. But in His mercy, He sent His Son. Because His justice had to be satisfied, His Son died on the cross. But because He was God, He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And now, He's at the right hand of the Father. And what's He doing? He's making intercession for you and me. So now, as I'm walking through this life, life gets hard. I can go to the Father, how? Through the Son. I can pray. Life changes. The world changes. Because now, I have a proper view of economy. And I understand that there is a moral law because there's a moral lawgiver. I understand that I am under condemnation of law. But Jesus Christ wants to pardon me through His own blood. That's eternal life. Thanks, Anthony. Look. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. God's not to be trifled with. I'm done. Let me say this. It's not a Baptist thing. It's not a Catholic thing. It's not a Mormon thing or a Presbyterian thing. It's a reality thing. Right? The simple fact is, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter. There's so many deceivers out there. Just be good. Just love your neighbor. Just None of that has anything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is this, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures, that He died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the biblical definition of the gospel. That's what it is. That's reality. And then the next step of reality is when you are born again, when you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're still sowing. You're sowing. You're sowing for eternity or sowing for the flesh. What are you sowing? It's so important that we get this. So now, here's my question. Let's wrap this up. Let's put some handles on it so you can go home. Anybody want to go home? Go eat. Here's where it comes down to. If you died today, do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Do you know for sure? The Bible tells you you can. Not a Baptist thing. It's nothing. It's reality. It's the Word of God. The Bible tells you you can know that you have eternal life. And this is the record that we have eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that ye may know that you have eternal life.
1 John 5, 11 through 13. That's what the Bible says. You can know that you have eternal life. I hope that you'll get that settled. I hope, you know the saddest thing that you can do? The saddest thing that you can do is have your kids walk by your, gra- your, your casket and not know where you are. That's it. Saddest thing you can do. Do you know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? You can. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word.